Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini. And we're the filmmakers behind Feels Good Man. Feels Good Man. Uh, Feels Good Man. Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity. I'm your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times, and make sure you follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud if you aren't already. Also, make sure you check us out at flyfidelity.co.uk. And now for the main event. We have a guy in the White House. I'm not going to say his name it was a defining moment it was not just for Americans for the world and that mother was given a chance to say we are about love and not hate and that mother did not denounce the mother clan the alt-right and those Nazi mother it was a defining moment and he could have said to the world not the United States that we were better than that the so-called mother cradle democracy that's some bullshit the United States of America was built upon the genocide of native people and slavery that is the fabric of the United States of America. As my Brooklyn brother Jay-Z would say, facts. Incredible content for incredible times. You were listening to the Fly Fidelity podcast. On this episode, we're joined by director Arthur Jones and producer and writer Giorgio Angelini. Whatever kind of weird stuff kind of stuck with me in childhood, sometimes it ends up in boys club. Like, I remember when I was in second grade and I went to the bathroom alongside my cousin David. Then he pulled his pants all the way down to go pee, underwear and everything. Seems like it would feel really good. So I wanted to make a comic about that. Feels good, man. And that was the frame that started it all. I just thought it was cool that I could just draw a comic, scan it in, and put it on MySpace, and then people would see it instantly. For anybody not familiar with who Pepe the Frog is, who is Pepe the Frog and how did this project come about? Pepe the Frog, for something uh, as simple as a cartoon frog, is actually pretty hard to define. Um, Pepe the Frog was created uh, in 2006 by an American cartoonist named Matt Fury, who was living in San Francisco. And he was a character in this zine called Boys Club. And it was a pretty obscure comic book in America. Matt only did four issues of it. And um, in issue two of Boys Club, there's one page in which um, Pepe the Frog uh, is standing in a bathroom and he has his shorts pulled all the way down around his ankles. And one of his roommates walks in and it's kind of a funny and awkward moment. And then afterwards, another one of his roommates asks Pepe while he, why he is peeing with his pants pulled all the way down around his ankles. And Pepe responds, feels good, man. And so that one image of Pepe the Frog saying feels good, man, is the name of our film and also is the thing that kind of shot Pepe off of the comic book page and into the memeverse, into the, into the Internet. And so, uh, I mean, Pepe, to describe how he looks, he's an anthropomorphic frog. So he kind of has like a human's body. And then like uh, he, he looks maybe a little bit cracked out. He looks a little cute. He looks a little creepy. He's bug eyed. Um, in the comic book, he was originally considered just to be like a good natured character. And then uh, he be, this image, the feels good man frog became a, a meme on the Internet. And then over about a 10-year period, it evolved. 
And during that evolution, it went through a lot of different changes. But in 2016, through a variety of uh, kind of unique events, Pepe was actually declared a hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League and used by um, people like Donald Trump and also a variety of white supremacists, basically as a tool for propaganda. So our movie really unpacks uh, all of that. Pepe, I think the beauty and terror and interesting aspect of Pepe is that he means so many different things to so many different people. There's a huge percentage of the population who know him as an internet meme and have really no understanding at all of his background as a cartoon character. Um, there's some people who view him as a simple sort of... Uh, Emoticon. People on Twitch use him as a way to just emote a, a variety of emotions of excitement or humor or whatever that have absolutely nothing to do with the darker aspects of, of how other people use him. And so Pepe is just this weird avatar that fluctuates at this strange frequency that seems to pick up with a, a, a huge portion of, of, of predominantly younger people around the world. I was wondering if there was a specific stage of Pepe's transformation that you started making this documentary during. When does your relationship with Pepe the Frog begin? Uh, my, this is Arthur. My relationship with Pepe the Frog begins from those original comic books. Um, I, had, I had bought the comic books back mm. in the mid-2000s and thought they were funny, um, I didn't, and I didn't know Matt Fury at the time. And then several years later, I guess probably around... Um, 2014 2013 i met matt fury through uh, some mutual friends we took a big group hike and we all camped next to a hot spring together and over that two-day camping and hiking experience i got to know matt and we got to talking and it turns out we had a bunch of mutual friends and we just got along really well um you know and I, so whenever i would see pepe online when i would see pepe in a meme or on the news even, I always kind of had this sensation of like, oh no, Pepe is lost because I, I really knew him from the comic books. Um, and I thought maybe, uh, you know, I would always wonder like, what does this stuff happening in the news with Pepe have to do with my friend's comic? And so, um, you know, the, the moment that I really kind of uh, saw Pepe turn in the pop culture zeitgeist though was... Um, in the fall of 2015, and there was a, a school shooting in Oregon at the Umqua Community College, and that was on October 1st, and it was reported that um, someone had made a post on 4chan using an image of Pepe the Frog holding a gun, and it was reported that it was this school shooter. Um, and so that had made the news, and people were like, ah, what, what, what is this meme with a gun that people are using? And then two weeks after that, um, then presidential candidate Donald Trump retweeted an image of himself as Pepe the Frog. And so you were like, how is the leading candidate for the Republican Party and a school shooter both using this meme? And why isn't anyone really taking this story um, seriously outside of like kind of just a, a pop culture curiosity? So, um, you know, that observing that was something that really kind of made me really wonder about the story as a whole. I thought that it could be an interesting project. And um, then I, I reached out to Matt in 2017 about doing a film about it. And he and his wife, Ayana, agreed, thankfully. Um, and so we talked to Matt not long, not long after um, Charlottesville in America and not long after he had, like, officially killed Pepe. Yeah, this is Georgia. I was going to add, like, Charlottesville, meaning like the this really uh, awful Unite the Right rally that resulted in the death of Heather Heyer. It was this kind of big cultural inflection point uh, in the country, but certainly for Arthur and I, and just in terms of just realizing we had to come to terms and really speak candidly and frankly about what was happening online and how people were getting radicalized and why this silly green frog kind of sat at the center of so much of the story. So what about the evolution of this silly frog you speak of? Can you speak to the evolution that this documentary went through to tell Matt Fury's story and, and address those complexities on of, of getting it off the ground? Was it ever challenging to strike a balance of trust and interest from Matt Fury because of this bad luck he's experienced in the past with people. Did, did the creator of Pepe the Frog ever trust you to tell his story? Did he ever not trust you, Ralph? Um, 
you know, I thankfully Matt did trust us. Um, and I, you know, at the very beginning before we started filming, I really laid out to Matt exactly what it would entail making a film. And, um, you know, I think he saw how hardworking we were. And, you know, I think there were also times where Matt was uncomfortable with us filming things that were going on in his life. But thankfully, he, I think he realized that, um, that he, he was going to be able to trust us to tell this story in a way that felt like really thorough and artistic um, that would go beyond like maybe like a 15 minute story on Vice News or something like that. So, you know, he did trust us, but that's not to say that that relationship was always easy. You know, Matt's a very like quiet person. He's a very shy person. He's most at home in his art studio, not in front of the camera. So there were definitely times where Matt was reluctant, but I think he also knew that in order for this to be like a work of art, he really had to not give us any editorial constraints. So part of his trust was really allowing us to make the film that we wanted to make. And Matt's only real like request of us as filmmakers was um, to make sure that the artwork in the movie was really representative of his initial core vision of what Pepe was and that the animations were really beautiful and well-made and artistic. And so um, that that was really kind of the only constraints he put on us as artists. Absolutely. I mean, a documentary, it, it doesn't skim over his responsibility and it speaks direct to those feelings. What about your mental health in telling this story? W were you worried about any response or at worst attack from the alternative right? Did, did this as a creative project ever compete with yourselves being happy as much as Fury suffered? You're the first person to have asked that. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, we've, we've been, people ask about trolling all the time in the film. And for the most part, Giorgio and I have been very pleasantly surprised. Um, people are ready to hear the message of this film. Um, they feel like the sort of um, trolling and, you know, th this is a story about how trolling really moved off of these obscure message boards and into popular culture. And I think trolling is something that we have seen the, the cumulative effects of over the last four years. And it's something that a lot of people really feel infuriated and fatigued by. And so I think having a story like this is actually really um, welcome to people that have been uh, observing this phenomenon and feel disturbed by it. So we've actually gotten a lot more positive um, you know, press and attention and nice notes and stuff like that from people that are truly appreciative of this story that really have found to like they love Matt's artwork. They didn't know it about didn't know about it before. In terms of the personal toll, I mean, we we made an independent film. It was a tremendous amount of work to make it, and it was something that I think um, we both really enjoyed the process of. But it was hard, you know. I think there were moments where both of us questioned kind of what we were doing or how we were going about the process. I mean, I just got back from the acupuncturist. Like my hand is still. <laughs> a lobster claw after animating all of this stuff. Um, you know, it was more of actually kind of, I think like a physical fatiguing than a mental fatiguing for me anyway. Mm. What about you, Georgia? Yeah. It was also just, it was making sure that we got the story right too. That's honestly what kept me up at night proverbially speaking, but sometimes literally speaking, like making sure that, cause the story is both terrifying and funny and heartfelt and sad and that's also precisely i think what makes it such a special film but it's also what made it such a challenging film right we were we were really concerned both by how the trolls and professional racists might respond but also how like um mm. the press and how like would they give us the benefit of the doubt that we were coming from a good place and were we handling this really disturbing content in the most responsible way that was something that arthur and i spoke about all the time during the edit. And like, I think we're both very pleased with how the response has been because ultimately we wanted to make a film that didn't pull any punches, but also wasn't preachy, that was nuanced, uh, not simplistic. And um, yeah, we're just so pleased by the response. And like Arthur said, it's uh, I've been running our social media since the film came out and it's been really great to see that like, like Arthur said, people are really ready to hear this story because for so many younger people they've grown up with trolling as kind of an offshoot of bullying and it's crossed over into the mainstream and into the highest echelons of our government and like 
it's at the core of everything. It's at the core of the cynicism that's been pushing this lack of response to COVID. It's behind the cynicism of of of, of the entire way that the administration is built. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad it struck a, struck a nerve. That's interesting. So with that being said, was there much of a process for you to detach yourself and reject the version that existed before making this documentary, the negative version that existed, and in turn with rejecting that, become your best version of yourselves making this? You know, um, that's, that's a good question. This is Arthur. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, making this film was a really like self-actualizing process for me personally. You know, this was, uh, you know, this is my first film, and I, I have to say that the thing that was was the thing that allowed us to sort of push back against the darkness um, that the film is about was really the joy of the collaboration. Yeah. It was uh, the relationship that Giorgio and I developed over over the the process of making this film. It was a great relationship that we had with our editors and animators and sound designers. And uh, even our executive producers, Wavelength Productions, were really like fantastic and supportive at every turn. Um, and so that was actually like. Uh, you, we, I don't know. I was, I was overwhelmed many times by just sort of like the life affirming power of making art and being creative together as a group. Um, and I know that that can kind of maybe sound a little corny, but it wasn't during the making of this. I think we had like a really like shared bond to tell the story. And that was the thing that I think kind of emboldened all of us to kind of go forth bravely and tackle this subject matter. But I mean, at no point did any of us enjoy spending um, <laughs> time on 4chan and going through the the threads and doing the journalism of it. But ultimately, you know, we talked to each other a lot. There was a lot of great conversations had during the making of this film with all the people who worked on it. And that was really like, um, you know, a, a great great sort of medicine kind of um when it comes to tackling this difficult subject matter and it felt like so much of america right now does feel really polarized and defeated and uncomfortable to be part of and this film felt like uh, felt like it was something that we're doing that gave us a real, real positive chance to say something and make change and that was something that we were excited about you mentioned some of those corners and facets of collaborating. I was recently speaking to Dimitri Samakis the other day, the co-founder, of course, of Everything is Terrible. He was talking about yeah. his involvement with this project specifically. Can you talk about that process with Everything is Terrible? Sure. I mean, I so Nick, Nick Mayer, who is Dimitri's partner, is a pal of mine. And they had had Matt Fury do um, some t-shirts for Everything is Terrible. Um, and so, you know, Nick was someone who, uh, Nick is a real like workaholic. Um, he's a, he's a passionate artist. Um, he's someone that I'd observed as a friend for years, just how hard Nick worked and how they're always on the road and doing stuff. So, you know, Nick, um, was someone that I talked to when I first started making the film, just as someone who was a fan of Matt's. And then he helped us digitize all of Matt. Matt had all of these amazing home movies, that were just sitting in a box on on um, high eight film, nice. and so every the everything is terrible guys um, did us a solid and saved us maybe a thousand dollars in digitizing fees, which was great. Um, but yeah, those those guys are real are real sweethearts, and you know they also they're just kind of. Uh, you know, they're, they're so, they're a great resource in terms of artists who really want to do things for themselves. Like everything is terrible has been a DIY project that those guys have been doing for a very long time. And so I think we definitely have kind of a shared visual aesthetic. Um, but also, you know, I think I just took a lot of inspiration from the way that those guys, uh, choose to operate in, in, you know, filmmaking is like an independent pursuit one of the great things this documentary does is raise questions about the relationship between the artist and the audience do you guys miss coming from an era where examining a piece of art wasn't half as common as it is now do you miss that spirit of innocence how do you think society and culture is stripping that innocence away um I to me it's a question about this is Giorgio this is a, it's a question about how the internet has really transformed the consumption of art. Like you're simultaneously 
having access to an unlimited amount of data and information, but for some reason we tend to like um, like uh, build walls around ourselves and just reinforce our preconceived beliefs and and just the way that we consume things it's without context right everything is just kind of happening all at once and you're building your own reality around you and so um yeah the experience of pepe is a kind of great study in terms of how uh yeah about the relationship between artists and their work and the minute it it, it, it hits the uh the brain trust that is the internet um I don't know. It's it's. I'm sure there's far more eloquent uh, and thoughtful art critics who've talked about this, but it's certainly interesting. But I do think that is one of the. This is Arthur. I do think that is one of the reasons that so many people felt like Pepe was theirs. Right. Exactly. You know, it, it was it was something that um, when Matt sort of came into the picture and tried to reassert his true intentions for the character, both just publicly telling people what he felt about it and then also through enforcing his copyright, there was a real um, kind of pushback because I do think people just kind of think that they own their own scroll. You know, it's just kind of like, um, you know, the the, the version of their curated self is somehow representative of of other people's intentions Mm. that are in different places. And so... You know, I think, yeah, we are kind of at this generational shift right now um, in the way that people consume media, the way that they sort of take media and then use that as ways in which they formulate their own personalities as they're growing up. You know, it's, it is it is a story of youth culture changing and speeding up and shifting. Um, you know, that is kind of the subtext, I think, of the film. I've just always been into drawing. It takes tons of time to come up with a character. And then eventually it was Pepe. It's a happy little frog. You like drinking and hanging out. It became Boys Club. It's one of the funniest comics of the last 10 years. Feels good, man. That was the frame that started it all. became a meme. I didn't even know what a meme was. There were all these boys trying to own each other on the message boards. In drops Pepe. Right for the taking. He had gone dark. The white supremacist movement has taken over Pepe the Frog. Pepe escaped out there into the memosphere. It got so big that you couldn't reverse it. It seems incredibly random that this frog is going to represent white supremacy. Creating memes gave people who had never been involved in politics a way in. It was like making the internet real. I'm just a spectator to how things kind of evolve on the internet. It's a window into this dark place. Then it started to get strange. Pepe has permanently altered the course of history. Do you feel any personal responsibility for the bad stuff that has come out of this? Whatever Pepe meant to all these other people didn't mean the same thing to me. I'm doing everything I can in my power to shut these assholes up. Answer the question I asked you. Can we turn a recognized hate symbol into a love symbol? You can change the course of this thing. Suddenly, Pepe is being used as a symbol of hope. If you want to escape hell, you can't ignore it. You almost have to go to the center of it. Pepe the Frog is an omen because it's not going to go away until we hear the message that it has to say. So how did you pick the name Pepe the Frog? It sounded like um, pee-pee. To go pee-pee. Can you speak about the power this documentary speaks to in terms of encouraging your audience to engage in discourse on memes and viral internet culture? This is a documentary that pushes forward that dialogue about understanding older concepts and producing new meanings. Could you speak to that? In specific to Pepe and our intentions and the anima- the intentions of the animation, like the experience of Pepe online is a byproduct of the fact that like Matt is just an independent artist. When he put that, when he scanned that uh, page from Boys Club and put it on MySpace, there wasn't 
like a multi-billion dollar media conglomerate pushing out the narrative and brand of Pepe. It just became this thing that that morphed and transformed online on its own. Um, and so for the film, really, it was kind of about, in a sense, canonizing Pepe so that people could um, engage with the true intention and then contend with their own relationship of Pepe. And hopefully that would spur a kind of internal conversation with themselves about how they uh, engage online and uh, to understand that like these things don't just kind of come out of nowhere there's there's a there's a uh, there's a birth story to all of it so at the end of the film uh, John Michael Greer like our resident occultist he says uh, you know that Pepe is an omen and we must listen to what he has to say and I think you can take that as a kind of maybe silly joke, but if you start to take it seriously, you start to understand that there's really a lot of truth to it, that the commonality be behind everyone's relationship with Pepe as a character, even if they don't know Matt's background, is that, is that Pepe is representative of this uh, particular youth uh, experience across the world, this sense of alienation, the sense that, uh, you know, that global warming is this uh, looming, uh, pandemic that that doesn't seem the older generations are dealing with or any number of sort of issues about income inequality and feeling like you're powerless and for some reason Pepe uh, resonates with people at this particular emotional valence and it was just the situation in America was just the case that opportunists sort of identified these kinds of people these kind of Pepe users and took advantage of that of that sense of alienation and doom but um, I think what what the story of Hong Kong kind of showed us is that it's always evolving and that, um, you know, no one can really lay claim to Pepe in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, to, to maybe expand on that, you know, there, there's a lot of people who, if you are a passive user, if you're an extremely online person, and you're 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 sort of a maybe a passive personality. There's a lot to fear in America right now. There is a lot of like legitimate fear, whether that's like the ability to um, pay for your education that you desire, whether that's the ability to like buy a house, the ability to like feel financially successful enough to start a family. Um, there's a lot of real fears that people have in America, especially if you're someone who is choosing to sit sort of quietly alone and not really like putting yourself out there. And so there's that fear that people have. But then there was this moment in 2016 where the right wing very cynically decided to take that very real fear and twist it and push people towards xenophobia, racism. Um, and, you know, that was something that Pepe just really became the signifier for. And so I think that, um, you know, we've seen another micro generation pass in the time we started making the film. And now that we've finished it, there's a new group of Gen Z kids that recognize this and they realize that this nihilism and cynicism that was sort of the predominant dialogue that was happening in 2016 on a lot of these like message boards or on gaming conversations and channels, they realize it's just not a productive thing. They realize that it's that it's um, something that it's just fatiguing sitting in this negativity so much. So it has been encouraging to see that. So at which point did you personally experience Pepe, you know, seeping into 4chan narrative and descending into a place of hate and being hijacked? What was that moment for yourselves? I mean, I had known, this is Giorgio, <clears throat> I had known Pepe as a meme, just having spent a lot of time on Reddit uh, in my late 20s and early 30s. And I'm embarrassed to say that until Arthur told me about this project he was embarking on. Like, I didn't even know Matt existed. Um, but in terms of like the, so I, I understood him as just like a silly meme that was a kind of reaction image and there was really no baggage attached to it other than that. It was really um, that I started to notice was when Richard Spencer got punched in the face, personally, when I saw like, right. oh, that's weird. What, why is he making that connection? And then it, like as I started talking to Arthur about the project, it obviously all started to make a lot more sense where that commonality was coming from. But it was, you know, like we were saying in the last response to the last question, like a lot of it was very constructed, right? It's that it's that this group of disempowered, predominantly men online happened to be using Pepe, 
And, you know, it's, it's, it's long been the strategy of professional racists to co-op pop culture and ingratiate their hateful message with pop culture to kind of seep into the public consciousness that way. Um, it's something that David Duke talked very openly about doing when he was running for public office. Mm. Um, and Pepe is just this weird, you know, 21st century version extension of that. So we're talking about a documentary that was very much a learning process for yourself. Was there anything that stood out for yourself, Arthur, out as being the biggest revelation creating it? Um, I mean, the, 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 uh, the thing that, uh, like, Giorgio's moment was the Richard Spencer moment. For me, the moment was that school shooting and then, you know, followed by Trump basically um, – you know, retweeting an image of himself as Pepe, where I was just like, what in the world is going on right now? And how is this um, something that no one is talking about? I felt like it actually was this moment where the internet, um, the most obscure places in the internet were really bleeding out into culture, and everyone was kind of ignoring it. And then simultaneously to that, you know, I spoke to Matt about that incident, and I think he was baffled by it. It was something that we all felt baffled by. So I think that was the beginning of this questioning process about what is going on. How are these sort of um, niche online communities um, really taking advantage of the attention economy and, um, and gaining power and significance within American culture? Um, I think for, you know, for, for me, the, the surprises on this, you know, I didn't realize that America was as angry as it was. Um, I didn't, I, I think I had maybe just been, you know, I, I had a lot of other things going on in my life. I didn't feel like, um, I, I, I did not, I thought that I understood America in 2014, 2015. And then when in 2016 hit, I realized I really did not understand America. Um, I had sort of lost track of what was going on in the rest of the country. And the rest of the country was feeling this sense of um, pathological outrage. And Pepe had become a symbol for that. And um, I think that's just something that we as a culture are trying to figure out how to navigate right now. Because there is just a segment of America that believes that their rage is absolutely justified and it's unfocused and it's unproductive. And then there's another part of America that is trying to basically deal with their fellow citizenry that is irrational um, and that has been twisted by this politics of aggrievement. And so, um, you know, hope, our hope with the film is that it is a conversation starter, that it's something that people can really um, talk about when they're talking about how social media has um, played a large part in tearing this country apart. And it's something that is the gen it's, it's now like this next generation's task to figure out how to navigate this and for us not to lose mm. track of truth, um, for us not to lose track of, um, democracy. <laughs> um, and so it's a small story about a silly frog, but I think we both saw the, the, the larger importance of this story. And because it's about a silly frog, we knew a lot of more people would see it than it was just like a survey film or like a, a news film about social media. Can you see democracy becoming more and more obsolete in people's minds if it doesn't catch up to the radical transparency and participation validated by the internet? No, for sure. I mean, it's back to that point about Pepe being this omen and you, and you know, he says Pe Pepe is an omen and, and you have to listen to what he has to say. And to me, what he has to say is like, uh, you know, Pepe is like, instead of a canary in a coal mine, he's like the frog on the forum. There is a, there is a generational divide and we have to listen to what, uh, where this alienation and sense of doom and dread isn't coming from nowhere. Right. We can't continue to ignore, uh, Climate change. We can't continue to ignore the rapid wealth inequality. We can't continue to ignore all the issues that seem to be much more uh, forward-facing and prescient with younger generations, as like the older generations kind of cynically <laughs> uh, hold on to their hold on to their wealth as they you know slowly succumb to COVID. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're you're seeing, uh, you know, 
Pepe maybe isn't playing a big part in this election cycle in the United States, but um, the the misinformation that yes, is that's at that's play right. in America right now it, it right. started on 4chan. It started on 8chan. Um, it started in the same places that Pepe was initially popular in. And so we are seeing this moment where if you have a segment of your population that is completely untethered to reality and no longer cares about truth or statistics or any of these things, it's a part of the population that's very easily manipulated. And I do think that's a very real threat to social democracy because you basically have a group of people that are happy to basically um, uh, consume politics as if they are a cult member. Yeah. And so it means that their allegiance to Trump is something that isn't tied to reality. It's tied to this like just uh, this uh, emotional, irrational connection to him as a person that is unbreakable. And it's unbreakable in the face of like, you know, fraud. It's unbreakable in the face of, um, you know, his se sexual misconduct al allegations. It's unbreakable. And in so COVID. <laughs> yeah, in terms of him getting COVID, all this stuff. So, uh, uh, you know, Pepe is a case study in how these silly jokes, just like QAnon, silly joke on 4chan um, does seep into um the consciousness and and basically steal the attention away um, from the the real problems that Giorgio was enumerating. Yeah, and like to that end, it's like in that soup, in this in this break from consensus reality, the people who really stand to benefit are the grifters, the liars, the cheats. Because if you can't agree on what's fact or fiction, I mean, this is essentially the strategy that 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 Putin had sort of devised in his rise to, to power. There's the great film by the British documentary filmmaker, uh, Adam Curtis, hypernormalization that Arthur and I both talked about a lot at, in depth when we first started making the film, but it's like, we're, we're seeing all of that play out and Pepe is just this great way to tell this otherwise super confounding story through the, through the story of this like weird, silly green frog. Absolutely. I want to take it back to Trump. As much as I don't want to talk about Trump, <laughs> there's, there's a sequence with Donald Trump's former director of strategy data for the campaign. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was it as effortless as it seems in the film to get him to talk as candidly as he did? Were there things he wasn't as vulgar about when you spoke to him? When we first approached him, um, he's the only person that um, I gave the questions to beforehand because... Um, right. But then that said is once we got into a conversation with him, all of that preparation went out the window. And if anything, he seemed actually quite eager to um, play the troll in the film. So um, actually, I, th I think, you know, that conversation was a like most of our interviews were pretty straightforward. That interview kind of um, ricocheted around the room a lot when we were talking. Um, it was something where I think he viewed this as an opportunity to um, uh, make a statement. And his statement was that he mm. was there to troll. And so that, I think that's what came through. In the film. And also like push his brand basically, right? All these, in, you know, the, the Republican national convention this year quite infamously did not have a party platform. Like there was no official party platform for what the party stood for. And I think that's really indicative of, where we are as a country and also what uh, Matthew Brainerd was kind of delivering to us. Cause in that absence of d needing to define what your politics are, it just becomes about the cult of personality. And I think Matt really wants to put forth his, his brand that he's cultivating. And um, that's what he gave us. There's a scene where Dale Barron is talking about the creative process drawing Peppy and part of that process and technique involving drawing too many lines. Do you think the media has an issue with drawing too many lines and what's acceptable and what's censored? I, I think the media has to draw too many lines when we're dealing with basically a five, like a five minute news cycle. Like if the news cycle is basically trying to compete with everyone refreshing their browser, 
there's bound to be this overwhelming amount of storylines and narratives that people are trying to push. And it's not something that we are capable of ingesting. Um, you know, people used to seek out information for a reason. They used to seek out information to solve a problem in their lives. And now this, there's just like this flood of information and none of it seems to add up to any sort of like um, personal answer seeking right now. And so um, I don't know what the solution is um, because media is also like, financially failing right now so there's this moment where everyone is feeling like a sense of like panic and they the only solution they can see to it is just by creating content but content isn't necessarily important content isn't necessarily incisive content isn't human um there's something that feels like we're doing data downloads into our brain it feels transhuman actually and so you know i do think matt is a very potent protagonist and feels good man because he is someone who is um he's he's a guy of simple pleasures he's a guy that is really like um someone who cares about his family and uh cares about his art process and tries to be like um a responsible member of his community and and i think i think part of the film is you see matt sort of confronting the doom scroll of pepe and dealing with it, but not necessarily getting sucked into the machine. You don't see Matt like picking fights on Twitter and trying to become a political pundit. Yeah. He's he's doing what he can do in a way that feels true to himself. And then at the same time, he's also being responsible to his friends and family around him. So I, I do think it's just this reinforcement of truth and reality, whereas the the conversations you're having in Instagram are not real life. What is real life is the conversation we're actually having right now. It's mediated through technology, but this is a real conversation. Ordering a coffee from someone and having a you know small talk with them is real. That's real. The stuff that's happening on Twitter is not real. And so we have to just kind of reconfirm that, um, I, I think, over and over and over again. And there has to be a movement where people realize that this is negatively affecting all of us. Completely agree. And the, the, the times you do see Matt in his documentary are very... Uh, they're very sweet moments and very authentic moments. Of course, there's a sequence where Matt is talking about Pepe and his origins and how he's never had to explain his work back then. Do you feel that woke culture has sabotaged comedy as an art form in the past 10 years? Um, I don't know. I think it's like anything else. I mean, there's... I think it just means that you have to grow and you have to adapt. I think there's incredibly talented writers and creators that are doing phenomenally groundbreaking work in this kind of culture. Like, I don't know if the show Atlanta uh, is popular at all in, in the UK, but like very much so. Yeah. Like that to me is like a perfect example of just like, you know, it's just the truth is, I mean, this kind of outside of the realm of this film, like, uh, you know, no one is, no one is guaranteed a career in comedy or, or film or writing. And it's like culture is always changing around you and you either adapt mm. or you die. Yep. Uh, I see it as a challenge, honestly. Like I don't, I personally don't see from my point of perspective, like comedy or filmmaking being stymied because of cancel culture or woke culture. I think what I am actually seeing is maybe more often than not, lazy untalented people yeah, <laughs> absolutely who are struggling to try to figure out how to like tell dick jokes in in uh today's climate but yeah they're they're, they're not very flexible creative minds but i mean i do think um there is a there's a generational and subtextual shift that's at work and feels good man which we don't get into in the film but it was something that we talked about a lot. It's sort of how transgressive art sort of went from something that was uh, a phenomenon on the left in the 1980s and in the 90s. And now it's something that's become part of the right. Um, you know, but I think all you have to do is watch the new Eric Andre special to realize that like, <laughs> you could be simultaneously woke and crazy and edgy at the, you know, all, all at once. Um, nice. you, but, know, you know, it's like your ability to be edgy is, I think, granted by your ability for your audience to give you the benefit of the doubt. Like, I think often you see people on the right being like, oh, well, I can't say anything, you know, edgy anymore because I'm just castigated as a racist. And it's like, well, yeah, in the context of your world and the people that you hang around with and the things that you say, 
we can't afford you the benefit of the doubt that you're saying this as an ironic joke because, you know, last night you were talking about how BLM is a terrorist organization. You know, it's like there's there's an earned there's an earned capacity to being able to be transgressive. And I think for a lot of people, they misunderstand what transgressive yeah. behavior actually is. It's just like. Being transgressive is not the same as being an asshole. <laughs> like those two yeah. things are- <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, for the longest time, for too long, comedy, a big part of comedy, most of comedy, has been taking the issue of the marginalized and oppressed people and making those issues funny. Those jokes have been largely told by white comedians, and I think it's time people take accountability as fans and reject that, because a big part of comedy has been about that. Let's uh, not dance around that being a reality, right? Sure, sure. No, we agree. Yeah. To be honest, like this is where this is where we are. I've given conferences for for ages, and uh, we'll usually expect some protesters. They'll do silly string or something like that. We've entered this new world where the leftist protesters. No, I'm not a neo-Nazi. You like black people? Well, why yeah, Neo-Nazis don't love me. They kind of hate me. Actually, they those people don't like me. Are you like the hipster version of the neo-Nazi movement? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. One of the themes in this documentary speaks to the effect and power of this meme magic. I mean, were you familiar with meme magic? And do you hold any superstitious views and and have any of those views come to fruition during or after making this project? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, people would talk about meme magic on 4chan all the time. So when I was doing the initial research on the film before we started making it, where I was just spending hours on 4chan and hours on 4chan archives, people would talk about meme magic a lot. So we always had this, like, um, you know, we always had a note card up on our, on our, you know, bulletin board where we were breaking the story that said meme magic question mark. And we knew that we had to do something with it. And then, um, th- then John Michael Greer came into our lives. <laughs> you want to talk about that, Giorgio? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I just happened to be doing a podcast for another project I'd worked on. And at the end of the podcast, they asked what our next project was going to be. And I started talking kind of vaguely about Pepe because we didn't want to be totally public about the film. And then a fan of the podcast reached out and was like, hey, you should check out this writer, uh, John Michael Greer. And I, I passed it along to Arthur and we started reading up on his work and listening to him on podcasts. And we're like, oh, my God, we have to we have to talk to this guy because at this point we had already interviewed it was one of the last interviews we ever was it was it maybe the last interview we did no but it was um it was close though was that the same trip uh yeah was that the same trip we did the anti-defamation league yeah the same no no yeah it was was towards the end of the process and we and when we shot it we weren't we we were like ha we weren't sure how it was going to go but as soon as the interview started it just had its own like unique energy. It felt like a really special thing when we were in the room with yeah. John. And, and then, um, you know, I, I, I think it was most of the interviews we would do would be very long, like several hours. And John's interview was pretty brief. It was less than an hour long. And so, um, yeah, I think we both immediately knew that it was going to have like a special place in the film one because it's fun but it's also thought-provoking i think you as an audience member have to decide whether to give john some credibility in your own mind or not i think it's like it it makes you think about filmmaking in the process you're like why did these guys put him in the movie am i going to take him seriously or not so we liked that friction that he provided um and then you know john's other work which we couldn't really get into in the movie he always talks about how magic by his definition magic is the politics of the unheard and he talks about historically magic has been popular has been popular in like slave populations people that feel as though they don't have actually any agency in the politics and the society they live in and so you know he's he was talking about this alt right moment where there was this group of americans and our, giorgio and i would agree that most of the guys on fortune have a lot of social power and social currency but they feel as though they don't and so me magic for them was a joke, but I think it was also something that was like for them part of this cry of, in their minds, desperation. Um, so you know, all of that went into that conversation with John, and it was 
as filmmakers, very like exciting for us to to just kind of like turn the camera on and see what happens. It was a very fun I, fun shoot part of. Yeah, there's I mean there's there's an absurdist quality to it. Like if you believe that just focusing on a hyper sigil and like making Hillary collapse, like you know that's up for you to decide if you want to believe in that or all at all. But I will say that you know memes in the same sense that magic is the tool of the unheard like memes and specifically internet memes really become tools for democratizing uh politics and democratizing propaganda that you as a little keyboard warrior behind your computer can potentially make something that the president retweets that completely upends the entire relationship between a political leader and uh and the electorate right suddenly you become an active participant in the political process. And when you think about meme magic, uh, you really like are talking about the democratization of propaganda in a sense. And then also, you know, um, John is an acolyte of Dion Fortune, uh, you know, the, the, the British occultist. And she always talked about um, uh, magic as, you know, being like, um, you know, art in accordance with will affecting change on in culture. And so we're in this movie, we're taking this silly frog and talking about him in a very serious way. And so, um, but at the same time, we understand that there's a surreality to it. (laughs) And, um, you know, that was just, yeah, it it felt like kind of necessary for us to tell the story of Pepe with this like wink and a nod and asking the audience to expand their own imagination when considering this story a little bit. I will say there's been this kind of like thing that, that was very popular in the internet in like 2014, 2015, 2016. It was this voice of like new atheism that was very popular by thinkers like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and all these sort of people. And I grew up very religious and in my 20s considered myself an atheist in response to having grown up as a fundamentalist Christian. But there's been kind of like in the last three or four years and even making this film, I've started to have like a little bit more of a, I wouldn't say like a spiritual awakening, but feeling like I have to be sort of more open to human potential and to realize that like, oh, we do have, um, if you're just sort of approaching the world through this cold view of atheism you're not necessarily sort of thinking about humanity and all of the the potential that it might have and so i don't know during the process of making this film i found that my heart has started to um maybe open up a little bit to some other ideas how much do you think talking to duncan trussell has enabled you to explore these (laughs) themes we're talking about together You know, it is funny. Like, I got into uh, Dun- Duncan's an interesting guy because I like that. I like the way D- Duncan is able to talk about depression as Satan. That's something that I I found to be like very potent when he would talk about. Um, you know, he he's talked pretty eloquently over the years about how his the way he chooses to confront depression. And he grew up religious, same as me. And can't say I really know Duncan, but have listened to his podcast a fair amount. Um, uh, yeah, he he really kind of is able to take um, the esoteric history of our mass mind and then kind of spin it into this like hilarious, weird um, discourse that has been it's been a, it's a fun way to think about things. When you listen to him, you start to like talk like him. Yeah. And so, yeah, there there is a part of that that I think has has influenced it. Um, yeah, we can send you a, a conversation we had with him. Um, if you want to, if you want to see it, I would love to, uh, I would love to see that. Two hours long. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were fucking wasted during the competition, <laughs> but it, it was fun. But yeah, it was a good time. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. Say- what about speaking of artists and great people? What about Skinner? How, do, how does Skinner become involved in this process? <laughs> well, we, I, I feel bad. There's a lot of Skinner that ended up on the cutting room floor. I think <laughs> the Skinner could, Skinner was about to give us his own movie of Pepe at a, at a certain point. <laughs> Um, Skinner, Skinner's an amazing dude. He's an amazing, amazing guy. Who's like one half Jack Kirby and one half Tony Robbins or something. Um, yeah, he's a friend of Matt's. I didn't know him before we shot that scene. Like when we were walking into his basement in the movie, that was the first time I met Skinner. And, um, Skinner is a guy who's has a pretty interesting backstory and he's really figured out a way 
for his art to be like very real therapy for himself. And then he also mm -hmm. kind of realizes that I love the way Skinner uses social media actually, because he has a lot of Instagram followers. He has like, you know, I think 120,000 Instagram followers. And he really uses Instagram as like a form of encouragement and um, kind of like, I think, uh, helping people like, uh, uh, you know, he's not using it just as like a tool to sell his stuff. He's really using it as a way to um, reach people who are maybe a little bit isolated. And I've found myself encouraged by Skinner's Instagram feed uh, pretty much constantly <laughs> since meeting him. Yeah. yeah. Like demystify the process too. I mean, I think that's something he said in one of our Q and A's with Matt, that Matt encouraged him to become an artist because he felt like he, it wasn't something he was capable of doing. So I think in a lot of a lot of ways, like Skinner's social media presence is kind of reaffirming reaffirming that realization of uh, you know encouragement for others. You mentioned the word tool. Take it back to a couple of minutes ago. Who are some of the artists creating comics now using their medium as a social tool for change that inspire you as comic fans? Ah. That's a nice question. I mean, I just I just bought Simon Hanselman's Seeds and Stems yesterday, nice. um, and I started reading that. And that that's definitely his 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 comics. Actually, I don't know what pronoun he prefers. Their comics um, uh, kind of remind me of that spirit of Matt Fury's comics when he started. Um, there's there's I mean I there's a lot of I mean we we feature Johnny Ryan in um, the film and Johnny's work is filthy and disgusting, um, but I am a fan of it. <laughs> there's also um, New York Nico. He's not necessarily a comic. His 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 father happens to be a super important legendary graphic designer, Stephen Heller. But uh, New York Nico is a guy on Instagram who's really taken the role of man in the street documentary filmmaker of New York specifically and really celebrating the kind of last vestiges of old New York. He's a, an incredible ethnographer and full of life and humor. And like, it's constantly just improving the lives of the people around him and celebrating all of the weird aspects of New York. And so I, I, I find him to be like a daily inspiration for these dark times. Very dope. That's true. And then other, I guess other comics I've read recently, uh, I, I like the stuff of um, Patrick Kyle a lot. Um, I like Jesse Moynihan's work, who's on, who works on the Duncan Trussell show Midnight Gospel. Yeah, there's a, it's a real great time for comics right now, actually. Is there any other artists whose work and story you'd like to talk about for a future film? To kind of go back to the last question, I guess it bleeds into this one. Uh, Brad Trommel is like an artist who does some incredibly wild, interesting work that's kind of mind-bending he's kind of taking this moment of irreality and and upending it and kind of pushing the limits as to what people are capable of believing um and he's very good at photoshop <laughs> so i don't know if it's I, he's someone that i'd like to spend a little bit more time with because he's kind of i would say a troll but maybe a troll for good but it's kind of one of these things where you're like you're playing with fire and you're not sure what I, I could totally see Brad Trommel uh, inadvertently like starting a war. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it is funny to like the, there is a little bit of a precedent. Uh, I mean, I don't I think someone made a film about it. I'm, I'm not I have not seen it. But, you know, Matt is part of this independent comics community that in the 80s kind of got put on blast because there was this dude named Mike Diana who did this very, very filthy comic called Boiled Angel. And he 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 was basically making it as a zine. But and it was very obscure, but it got turned into this like culture war moment. And he was actually put in jail for a period wow. of time um, because the because, you know, the, the D.A. in this very conservative county in Florida where he was living um, tried to basically turn him into a political football and um, so that he could continue to climb office. And he was going to put Mike Diana in jail on obscenity charges for that to help him uh, in that in that cause. So, um that is a fascinating story. And if people are, uh, you know, interested in these kind of things, that that story definitely has some parallels to Matt's story. I don't, you know, I, I think I, I would love to continue to tell stories about how art and politics collide in different ways. And I'm, I'm not sure what 
the next thing for that will be. But I don't know. I have been thinking a lot about the Bauhaus recently just because there's been a lot of like interesting writing about the Bauhaus, but they were all Nazis, but also their work is amazing. It's a very complicated, rich, twisty, turny um, post-war story about how the Bauhaus and all of its ideas um, spread across the world. If we're talking about stories and controversial stories in the art world, have you guys had the chance to check out the Ren and Stimpy documentary? <laughs> it's on my queue. You know, I've not. I I have not. Yeah, it's it was at Sundance at the same time um, we were there, and um, I am curious about it as someone who watched Ren and Stimpy and was a fan of it. But yeah, I've not had a chance to check it out. So, what does the future hold for distribution in this great documentary? Well, it's coming out on the BBC in the UK soon. Um, if we don't mention that, our reps there might murder me. But uh, <laughs> uh, we don't have a date yet. Yeah, so. the BBC do murder a lot of people. Only joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's coming out the last week of October. Uh, we haven't had a confirmed date yet, but I'm po- very positive it's that last week. But um, yeah, you know, Arthur and I and a very small team of... Uh, um, co-conspirators are putting out this film on our own so it's been an eye-opening and educational experience to basically throw together an independent film distribution company overnight essentially and learn along the way but we're hoping that um you know the film came out almost a month ago now in the u.s and it's kind of continuing to find its way to grow organically like we'll get like a random post from a famous person journalist or actor uh on twitter who likes to talk about it which is always very rewarding but hopefully yeah it'll be it'll be playing in the uk here soon and then in scandinavia and then we're hoping that we can find different partners all across europe because we certainly get no shortage of of uh dms from people asking when it's coming to town (laughs) i mean i think um you know the, the films that inspired us are cult films and i think ultimately feels good man future is is as a cult movie where maybe um it's not going to be like a wild mainstream success but the people that find the movie are going to love the film and so that's been very rewarding i think for us to take it out because um you know the people that that see the movie and really respond to it respond to it in a uh, in a really um, I think people are finding inspiration from the film and they're writing us to tell us that. And, um, that's really all we could ask for as yeah. creators. Um, and it's really appealing to a, a younger generation of artists that I think, um, are trying to grapple with how to put themselves out online as a way to like maybe, um, become working artists. And so they maybe, but then they also, they find Matt as like this inspirational, guy who is able to kind of live an uncompromised life as an artist and um yeah i i i hope that it will continue to find new fans of young artists comic artists filmmakers um in years to come arthur jones giorgio angelini thank you for taking time out to talk to us absolutely thank Thank you you so much. much